0: Hello, Common Ground. It's such a privilege to be with you again as we today look at week six out of our seven week journey through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. We're in our Origins series. And if you're joining us for the first time, I want you to know you've picked the right one. Uh, Today, we're answering one of the biggest, and if we're really honest, toughest questions in all of life. Today we begin a two-part kind of mini-series within this origin series as we look at the origin of suffering in the world. And next week I'm thrilled Donnie's going to be speaking to us about the origin of death. Where does death come from and what does it mean for our lives and is there hope in the face of death? Today though I'm going to be speaking about the origin of evil. In fact the big idea for today's message is quite simply this, what has gone wrong with our world? What has gone wrong with our world? When you look at our communities, when you read the newspaper, it's clear that Something has gone wrong. It's true, there's so much good in our world, absolutely. When you look at creation, there's, there's creation that inspires us to, to wanna just lift our gaze to God and worship. Our jaws drop at the splendor. But it's true that creation clearly has been marred. Something has gone wrong. Uh, so far, we've seen in our story, a Genesis 1 and 2 world that is good and glorious, but clearly that cannot be the whole picture. What about all the suffering in the world? That's what we're going to be grappling with today. Probably helpful though, to do a quick recap as we dive in. Our story in Genesis chapter one starts with a triune God who overflows to create this glorious world, not out of need, not out of deficit, but out of an overflow, a welling up, if you will, of love and goodness, this world is born. It's beautiful, it's glorious. Uh, What we see of this God is that He is sovereign, He's majestic, He's a creative creator, and He creates this world. And at the center of the world is this special garden called Eden. Eden could be translated as paradise as well. And uh, this garden, Eden, is the special place where God, if you will, it's like the first temple where heaven where God lives and earth where we live kind of for lack of a better word, for lack of a better word, overlap and the presence of God is—you see—it's the presence of God there to be with His apex creatures, His His special climactic creatures, human beings whom He places at the center of the garden with a mission, actually a mission to extend Eden, to cover the globe, to fill the world, and to order the world around the image and the nature of God Himself. It's a beautiful, beautiful vision. It's a glorious picture of what life could be. It's what my Michael Eaton calls plan A and it would be amazing wouldn't it if the story stopped there but clearly the story didn't the problem is our story continues and something has gone wrong in our world and that's what I want to explore today if you're not a follower of Jesus let me start by saying this if you're looking into the Christian faith I, I can't prove to you that Christianity is true I'm, I'm, I'm never going to pretend to get anywhere close to that. But what I will say is this, I am convinced that there is no worldview in all the world that comes close to making sense of our lives as human beings and the human experience. That although the Christian gospel cannot tell us why something goes wrong and happens, it gives us better resources to process, to understand, and to both live through life's toughest suffering and challenges. And so we're going to take a very real, very honest look at the tough parts of life today as we grapple with it through the, 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 the lens of the book of Genesis and we read together from Genesis chapter three. If you've got your Bibles, won't you open them up as we read Genesis chapter three, verse one. The context of our story is Adam and Eve are in the garden and we meet for the first time a brand new character in the story. Let's read together from verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. You see, we meet this new character, the serpent. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What a promise. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. I mean, this wasn't just a flimsy decision. Look at all these phrases put together here. She's thought about this. She took of the fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked for the first time they're aware of the vulnerability they're exposed and the first time they're aware of it so they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths here we see human beings using creation to cover themselves to protect themselves and they, they heard the sound of the Lord walking uh, in the garden in the cool of the day even though they've walked away from God even though they've sinned God comes walking towards them the man and his wife for the first time when God comes looking for them they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden they sin God comes towards them he comes looking for them but they withdraw from the presence of God in fact they hide behind creation in order to avoid God But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, God pursues and he says, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid first time we see this because I was naked and I hid myself. It's like this revelation of vulnerability that had never existed before suddenly causes fear to enter into the story. And God said, and so often we read this like, a, like an angry judge. But I think if we were to read this more correctly, it's that it's a loving father whose children have walked away from him. And, and, and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, oh, it was the woman that you gave to me. God, you gave me this woman. Then, then, then he continues, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Then it, at first he blames God, then he blames the woman, and then I ate it. And then verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And she blames the serpent. And neither of them can face up to the full weight in the reality of what they've done. They, they're trying to cover up the sin in their lives. Verse 14, and the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, above above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then this whisper of something that God will do. In verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Let's pray together. Father, as we grapple with this question, what has gone wrong with this world? Where does evil and suffering come from? And is there any hope to deal with these things. I pray, Father, you would speak to us of who you are. You would speak to us powerfully from your word about how we can understand suffering in the context of who you are and your great love for us. That you, God, would give us resources to live in the midst of this broken world, but full of hope and live towards this glorious trajectory that you call us to. In your name, by your power, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so here's the thing, if you follow the flow of Genesis, if you follow the flow, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, as we've been doing over the last few weeks, it's right about in chapter 3 that you start to ask the question. The question, well, if God is so good, and if God is so powerful, and if this world is so good that He's made, why does evil happen? I mean, why is there so much suffering? And Genesis chapter three comes to speak to us, to show us what went wrong. Genesis chapter three tells us that it was a deliberate act of independence, a deliberate act of self-autonomy on behalf of human beings, where we open the door to evil, if you will, and let death into our world. It was a human choice away from God that brought about the suffering of this world. As we start to grapple with this question, let me put it to us in the form of a question. Here's the question to us today. Do you believe that it's possible for human beings to have free choices without ever having suffering in our world? Do you believe that it's possible for human beings to have free choice without ever having suffering? I I must say, I've been so helped in my message preparation by a talk by Andrew Wilson on this subject and i I think this th- this question is answered by the tree in the garden. This is in fact the point of the tree in the garden. It represents a gateway out, if you will. Before this, they only knew good. now they know good and evil uh, As we heard in week three that this wasn't about eating the wrong apple. This wasn't Adam and Eve or Eve got something in her eye and it was blurry that day and she couldn't see and so she reached for the wrong tree. This wasn't, um, the tree is not like a banana peel that God put in the garden to trip us up. This wasn't just a careless mistake. This was a deliberate act This was an opting out, a deliberate choice between being God's image bearers. In other words, living with God and living for God versus following the serpent out into independence from God. That was the choice that day. It was an act that took us out from under God and and, and put us into God's place in our lives that we became our own gods, if you will. We chose in that independence from God. We're answering the question, is it possible to have free choice Without suffering in the world. But doesn't free choice mean that I can do things that hurt other people? For instance, should I be allowed to speed while I'm driving? And I don't mean legally allowed, I mean physically allowed by God to speed while I'm driving. What if what if there's an emergency? Have you ever got a speeding ticket, I wonder? Or or this one, maybe closer to home. Do you ever catch yourself slowing down when you approach a speed trap? The Arrival Live website says this The speed of motor vehicles is at the core of an estimated 1.2 million people that are killed and 50 million that are injured in road crashes worldwide every year. The hard truth is that all of this suffering is caused by normal people like us, deciding in our free will that we want to drive faster than what is legally and safely allowed to do so on the roads. Now, if God was to stop suffering, it would require that that we could no longer choose the speed we drove our cars. Do you think it's possible? to have free choice and no suffering in the world. What I'm getting at is the only way to stop so much of the suffering in the world is for God to have to stop the choices that we make to say that no one is allowed to choose what we do with regard to these things. The only other way for this to be possible, right? The only alternate would be if human beings only ever chose what was in the best interest of others or the best interest of our creation. In other words, if human beings said, I am going to treat other people as I would like them to treat me me which brings us straight back to uh, around to the christian gospel and the christian message around life you see the only way for there to be simultaneously no suffering and at the same time free choice is if everyone always chose what was in the best interest of other people and the honest answer to that is but we don't What if you're listening and you say, actually, but but yes, yes, I hear you, Luke, but actually we should, God should take away free choice, at least for the very worst people in the world, right? The people who do the really bad things because they should not be allowed to choose those things. Here's the, the thought though, that if you, if you take away someone's choice to do something, aren't you in fact taking away that person? You take away a part of who they are. You take away what they would do if they were free to do so. That person is no longer the same person that they would have been had you not taken away that thing in the first place. That person no longer exists anymore. We, might, we must ask ourselves the question though, personally, have I ever caused suffering in the world? Do I ever make choices that cause other people pain, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain? And I think this is what Genesis 3 is saying to us. Genesis 3 is is saying to us, we come to God and we say, God, why is there so much suffering in the world? And God kind of flips it. And he highlights our independence to walk away from him. And he says, you you come to me and you say, why is there so much suffering in the world? He says, I'm coming to you in Genesis chapter three. And I'm saying, let me ask you as human beings, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why are you allowing it? Why are you even in instances causing this suffering? What Genesis three shows us is that the line between good and evil, it's not out there with the devil and then us over here. It's not even out there with all the bad people and then over here with all the good people. What Genesis 3 is teaching us is that the line between good and evil runs right through the the straight line of our own hearts. It's within each of us. Evil is not just a problem out there. Evil is in here too. When you read Genesis chapter three and you're really reading it properly, you you should come away with this question, are we really the goodies? Are we really the goodies in the story that we like to think we are? It was once reported of G.K. Chesterton in the shortest ever published letter in the Times. The question was asked by the Times, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton's shortest ever response was published to which he answered three words, Sir, comma, I am. I am part of the problem. I'm part of the problem of evil and suffering in the world. If I'm really honest with you, I know this acutely in my own life. As a preacher, when you start to prepare a message, it forces you to look at yourself as well. In every, every single sermon we preach, I reflected on some of my life as a young man, some of, some of the things I did as a bully in the school, some of the ways I put other people down, and at that time didn't make much of it, but now I think about it through the lens being a father wondering if that was my son on the other side of me or my daughter on the other side of me and some of the relationships and the things that I did and the way I treated girls and I'm giving you the very parental guidance version of my list of things by the way but I think through these lens I think through these, the lens of an older father now all the things that Luke has done and i'm kind of i'm, I'm it's, it's terrible. And it's not just who I was back then. If I think of my own life right now, it's not just then. I feel this acutely that evil even, even touches in my heart even right now. I feel this as a parent when I look at my children and I see that some of my very worst traits are mirrored back to me in, in them. It's like the sins in my life that I haven't been able to deal with. have now been caught by them and that one day they're gonna sit in discussions and arguments in their family. And one day their family is in some way gonna have pain and suffering and be marred because of things They've caught from me. And I'm perpetuating sin through my own family whom I love simply because of undealt with things in my life. Evil is not just out there. It's in here. Now, Now, let me just be clear. I'm not saying that everyone is as bad as everyone else right? That's clearly not true. But what I'm saying the problem is common to all human beings. None of us have been unscathed by this decision in Genesis chapter three. Evil isn't just out there. It is in here. We choose all the time to put our own freedom above the happiness of other people, right? We do this. And this is what Genesis three is teaching us. We chose our own freedom and independence over our own and others happiness, Maybe still like Adam and Eve in our hearts, we want to blame God. We say, God, but surely God, you can stop this. Surely God, you can do more. To which John Blanchard says this. At what level should God intervene? We might say that he should not have allowed the worst offenders, the Hitlers, the Pol Pots, the Mao Tse of the world to do what they did. But what about the next level? Say the thugs, the sadists, the rapists, the child abusers, the drug pushers. Should God step in and stop them? And if he did so, there'd be another layer of offenders that would become the worst. Say the drunk drivers, the burglars, the shoplifters and the like. And if we argued like this, we would soon get to the point at which we would be demanding that God should intervene and prevent all evil. But would you settle for that? Even if it meant having your own thoughts and words and actions controlled by a kind of cosmic puppet master, robbing you of all freedom and responsibility. What I'm getting at here is the reality is if that God is to destroy all suffering in the world. It would mean God would have to destroy both you and me. The answer to the question, why does a loving God allow suffering in the world is because a loving God allows Luke Harper to exist. You see, you start by taking out Hitler and co. And then you carry on and you carry on. And each time you remove the worst and the worst, eventually I would become the most evil person in the world. And I'm sure all of you would still be here. But it wouldn't be long before someone comes along and says, Luke Harper, can you believe the thing that he did? Can, can you believe what he said? God forbid, can you believe the thoughts that he thinks? The only alternative would be for God to make it possible for human beings, human beings who have a tendency toward evil, human beings have a tendency toward the selfish independence, to turn away from our self-seeking ways, to turn away, to get rid of these old lives, to live, to, 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 to come back to God and to, to step into his original intent for what it meant to be human beings, to be a blessing to the world, to come back to him, to say God show us how to live, to then come to him and say God enable and empower me to live this way. And friends, that's exactly what the Christian gospel is. It's exactly what the Christian gospel is, that he's made it possible for a fundamental shift within us as human beings to to become, the, the biblical word is to have a new nature at the center of who we are. In Jesus, we are able to turn away from our self-seeking independent lives and turn back to God. This is the fancy Christian word is repentance. In Him, uh, we are able to sever ties with our old ways. This is the act of baptism as we die to our old selves and we emerge on the other sides with a heart to live a new life as we trust Jesus to teach us how to live. This is faith and followership of Christ, all the whilst relying on the Holy Spirit who's now living within us to to... to empower us to live in these altogether different ways. It's true in Christ, we really can be changed and live different lives. The, The only solution is for God to fundamentally change the hearts of human beings. And it's exactly what he promises to do. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Earlier on, I said to you, I don't think that there's another worldview that makes better sense of our human experience and what it means to be a human being. Genesis 3 so resonates with our human experience. It teaches us, it teaches us that suffering is a problem, that evil is a problem, that there is something that has in fact gone wrong. That when 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 evil is done to us, it should not feel right. It, it, it doesn't teach us that we can escape suffering and hardship. But it but it, it it teaches us that when we go through and we experience painful injustice, that, that it's not just the hurt that we feel, that, but that part of a human being heart, the part of a human heart that says, it's not just painful what's happened, but it's wrong. It's a, it's a violation. It's unjust. That thing, Genesis 3, legitimizes it. It means, it means that it's not just the pain, but it's that, that second thing you feel that it shouldn't be this way. That is real. Maybe I could ask it another way. Why is it that evil or suffering is a problem at all? I mean, pretty much all human beings believe that suffering is wrong in our world. We do. We, we, we all believe suffering is wrong in our world. But if there's no God, and if we simply just emerged out of primordial chemical soup, and there's no soul, and there's no spirit, and there's no sacred part about a human being, why is suffering a problem at all? I mean, when you look at the animal kingdom, the strong kill the weak all the time. We say, this is life. In fact, when I go to a game, a game drive or I watch, I watch game and animals in the wild, I hope to see a predator taking out prey. It's, it's part of life. And I'm saying, if this is just the way the world works, then why do we all struggle with the idea that strong people shouldn't take from weak people? And I'll put to you today, it's because something deep and fundamental to being a human being, something so woven deep into the fabric of who we are in, in our humanness says it's wrong. It cries out against injustice and it says things shouldn't be this way. Something something so true whispers and witnesses with our hearts to say, no, this is wrong and it shouldn't be this way. It, it's, and it's true to all human beings, no matter how deep you go into the furthest jungle where there's been no, Influence from Westerners or Easterners or any kind of nurse that, that have influenced people. You will find people, and you go to that tribe, and you will find as what N.T. Wright calls echoes of a voice. These are not just constructs we get from society, but these are fundamental to us as human beings. You will find within that tribe there will be, he speaks of four echoes. He speaks about, he speaks about a yearning for connectedness, a longing for relationship. This is what it means to be human, an, an appreciation of beauty. And appreciation, this, this, this longing for the divine, the, 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 the sense at which there's something sacred to be for, common to all human beings. And the fourth one is a, a sense of justice, a code of what is right and what is wrong. This is fundamental to being a human being. It's woven into the souls, for the lack of better word, of who we are. And I think it's, it's this that witnesses with Genesis 3 and, it, and, and Genesis 3 articulates this, that, that injustice is wrong in our world. It's wrong because, because there's something sacred within a human being. And I think the way we feel about this wrongness and suffering to the, points to this deep truth that we weren't created for a world like this. You and I were created for a Genesis 1 and 2 world and we find ourselves living in a Genesis 3 world. And this is where the rub comes in. As a pastor, I don't know why God has allowed it. But I know that it's not the way it's supposed to be. That there's a part of your grief that rages not only against the hurt, but it rages against the wrongness of it. Genesis 3 says it's legitimate. When, 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 you, when, when some, something happens to you that's wrong, when, when someone you love is taken from, me, from you, it's, it's right to feel wrong. This is a legitimate sense of your grief because we as human beings were created for a different world than the broken one in which we find ourselves in. And we're drawn to a distant world where there are no pe- tears, there are no more suffering and death is but just a mirage from the past. Okay, maybe you say, Luke, okay, I understand. I get something is wrong, but is there any hope of it being put to right? To which I think this text whispers to us again. Read verse seven and verse 21 with me. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Here we see human beings making a covering out of creation so to cover their own shame, their own sinfulness, their own vulnerability. But what we see here too is it's not enough. It's insufficient. It's almost as if creation itself has been marred. The very tools that they were using and their own hands are dirty. And so this covering is not enough. And so what happens is God himself comes along and God makes a covering for them out of the the skin of an animal, an innocent animal loses its life and the skin is, to, is created and, and, and fashioned into a cloth so as to cover over the vulnerability and the shame and if you will, the sin of human beings. And I think verse 21 is a foreshadow of the one who would later come as an innocent and would lay down his life to cover over our sins and, and to make right for all of the suffering caused by God's children. You see, at the end of the day, the answer to the question of suffering is Jesus And I don't mean in some trite way, it's Jesus. I mean, imagine with me that that there was a meeting in the world to decide what God would have to go through to understand and even to make up for human suffering. And a committee was formed. And those who were poor would say, he should be homeless. He should be hungry, constantly wandering from place to place without a home for himself. Those who've lost loved ones would say he should lose a family member and even a close friend. Outcasts in society would say he must face a major social stigma and even accusations of illegitimacy. Victims of apartheid might say that he should be oppressed by, a, by another racial group and, and, and maybe and, and even grow up without a legitimate citizenship and limited civil rights. We, we might say that those who were abused would say that he should face physical violence. He should face humiliation, abandonment, and even betrayal. And it, and it must be that the perpetrators are never caught and punished for what they've done to him. That those whose lives are cut short, we might say that, that, that he must be murdered in his prime. Others might say that his family should watch him suffer. Others would say that, that, that maybe because in their moment of need, it felt like God was silent, that when he's in his greatest moment of, of need, he should feel forsaken by God himself. Surely, surely this would be the most profound and wide ranging suffering imaginable. And then, and only then could we know that God understands our suffering. And then we would say, then God has provided suffering's answer. Friends, the gospel is just that. That Jesus endured it all for you and for me. And, and that's why the answer to the problem of why does God allow suffering? It cannot ever be that God does not love us and God does not care for us because in the life and the death of Jesus, once and for all, he showed us the lengths that he would go to in love and care for you and I as his children. And this forever shows us of his heart for us in the midst of our grief. That's the first thing I wanna say the second thing I want to say is that something needs to be said of the power of the cross and the resurrection to undo suffering. And admittedly, there's mystery to this point, but, but, but even in the mystery, it doesn't make it any less true right? And so here is a truth that is shrouded in mystery, but it is a powerful truth and it, and it is so real to our lives and we need to hold to it and cling to it in the midst of the hardship and the suffering we go through. Here's the thing, the, the cross and the resurrection was so powerful to not just cover up our sin and to not just cover up our suffering, but to transform it itself. I can't wait for Holy Week as we start to dive into the final uh, moments and days of Christ's life It's gonna be so powerful. But we're gonna see how Christ's death and resurrection transform our suffering. And I don't fully understand it this side of heaven. Michael Eaton says it like this. We will discover that God's plan B through the cross is even better than plan A, as if Genesis three had never happened. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Some mortals say of temporal suffering, That no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Something so powerful happened through the death and the resurrection of Jesus that even our suffering once, once in that final moment when Christ returns and, and he puts this world to right, somehow that power of the cross will even work backwards so as to transform our suffering and bring from it something glorious. And again, I don't fully understand, but this is the power of the cross. It was Tolkien, in fact, Lewis's friend who said it like this uh, in, in the context of the Lord of the Rings, this one of uh, the hobbits asked the question, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer is yes, that somehow in the power of Christ, everything sad is going to be transformed, is going to be redeemed, if you will. And, and swept up into God's great and glorious plan. There is no power like the cross to redeem and transform suffering. There is nothing like it in the world that I know. Uh, the, the final word on this one, I'll give to a man named Fyodor Dostoevsky. He wrote in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, he articulates this better than I ever could. He said this, he said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, the moment of eternal harmony, that something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for, the, for all the blood that we've shed. That it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened, friends, in Christ's death and in Christ's resurrection, so, something so powerful, almost, I know it's not the right word, but it, it's something like, like, a, like a magic works back in mystery to transform even life's harshest moments. I don't know why suffering happens, but I, I, it cannot be that God does not love us because he has done everything he can. And it cannot be that suffering is final. It cannot be that it has the last word because the power of Christ's cross and resurrection work backwards to transform it. And that is your hope. If you are sitting right now in the midst of tremendous suffering, may you know that suffering's word is not final, that Christ's, is with you if you will invite him. Jesus Jesus suffered alone in order that you and I would never suffer alone. I'm not a football fan. And I'm gonna lose some people now, I do apologize. Because if I had to choose a football team to support, I would choose Liverpool. And I would choose Liverpool because of the song that they sing. As together in that stadium, they say, we never walk alone. Whatever it is you're going through, Christ is with you. Invite him who understands to be with you and and be filled with the hope that rises up within you to say, Christ will redeem even this, that this is not final and you can trust him. I want to say one last thing as well hey to think one message is going to help us. It'll nudge us a little bit in a direction, but we need so much more than this. To those of you who just need to talk to a pastor or talk to a leader, we'll never be a church who's too busy to be able to speak to people in terms of pastors and leaders. I want you to know if you need to talk to someone, please pick up the phone, speak to your congregation leader, speak to your life group leader. We want to talk further around these things and to pray with you and to trust that Christ would meet you in the midst of, that what it is you're walking through. Can I pray for us as we land together? Thank you, Christ, that it seems as we read Genesis 3, we walk away from you, you you seek us out. You seek us out. We try to cover our sin, you make a better covering. Every time you make a better plan for our sin and for our suffering than we could ever make on our own. And God, I wanna pray first and foremost for those those who are suffering right now lord jesus for whom suffering feels overwhelming jesus i pray that the revelation of who you are as a father who seeks us out even when we walk away from him and as a brother who finds us in the midst of the most difficult things we could go through would be would be brought alive to us by an empowering spirit who joins you right now where you're at i pray holy spirit in every home in every heart That you would make real to us the power of Christ to be with us and to lead us through this, Jesus. You don't provide a way over or around, but you walk us through it. And God, that this profound truth that suffering is not the last word in our life, that actually your your cross and resurrection is so powerful that even this thing is gonna be transformed in my life. God, therein is a hope. And I pray, God, that you, Holy Spirit, would put that truth into our hearts and cause it to well up as we cling to you. But I also pray too for us as a church, Lord Jesus that it's this new nature that we would be a people in the city of Cape Town who less and less would be causing suffering because we genuinely believe in your word to transform our hearts, that sin is shrinking day by day in our lives because we're looking to you, Jesus, to teach us how to live. We're leaning into you, Holy Spirit, to empower us and that the Christian church genuinely lives in a different way in our city because we take you at your word and we, we live in followership of you and we lean on you to empower our lives. And so thank you, Jesus, that when we walked away from you, you took a step to us in the Father in Genesis 3. You whispered in Genesis three twenty-one of the ultimate step that you'd, you'd take to bring us home. We trust you, Jesus. Amen.